0: You're listening to This Nazarene Life, stories of young Nazarene clergy and their role models. On this episode of Season 2, we'll be hearing from Rev. Chris Branigan in Fort Worth, Texas. And hey, it's not too late to sign up for Young Clergy Conference, March 26-28, 2017. Find out more at youngclergycon.com. Thanks for tuning in! Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Britt Bullerjack and I'm here with my guest, Chris Brannigan. Chris is the lead pastor of Grace Tabernacle outside of Fort Worth.
1: Southwest Fort Worth, yeah.
0: Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: I'm glad to be here.
0: So the first question I ask everybody is, how did you end up in the Church of the Nazarene?
1: I was born into it. I'm a fourth-generation Nazarene because of a Nazarene pastor in the 19-teens, who on Saturday afternoons in Hollis, Oklahoma, it's the southern and westernmost town in all of Oklahoma, he would preach on the street corner Saturday afternoons, and one of the men who would come in on a horse and wagon was my great-grandfather. He would come in and get supplies, and probably to get out of coming to church, he would just made it up an excuse every time the pastor asked him. It was Pastor Lumen. And he would say, well, I'm not going to bring my family to church in a horse and wagon, but if God gives me a good crop... I'll buy a car and God honored um, that and he honored his promise and God gave him a good crop and he bought a car and he started bringing his family to church and he was saved there and my great grandmother eventually came around but it took her longer because she didn't want to give up her snuff And her dominoes.
0: Oh, dominoes.
1: Yes. And apparently we heard there was pressure, even though it was never official in our denomination, to give up her wedding band. Mm. So it was a big step for her. So mom and Papa Green, my great-grandparents, started bringing their children to the church. And one of those children was my grandma. And then my grandmother, um, her husband, died when my mom was only two. But she raised my mom in that church. And my dad was nominally in a Christian home, in the same town, and he really started coming to his faith because of my mother. So I'm a fourth-generation Nazarene because Pastor Lumen stood on the street corners preaching Saturday afternoons.
0: That's a great story. It's a
1: really, really cool story. We we were able to get back in touch. Well, really, my grandmother and her friend, who was Pastor Lumen's daughter, stayed in touch over the years, and then she mm-hmm. moved down close to us in Irving. So before she passed away, we got to visit her and hear that, that, that story. Wow. And that's the only way. So this pastor's daughter, who was very elderly at the time we were hearing it, she would share this story and she would share how her parents, Pastor Lumen, would come over to my great grandparents' house and they would and they would kill a chicken and my great grandmother would defeather it and all of that and the whole time as they're cooking they're just listening to Pastor Lewin cuz they're brand new Christians and they're just soaking in everything and he would just talk all afternoon at their place teaching them about the Bible. Wow. It's a really really cool story.
0: So how did you end up feeling like you wanted to be a pastor?
1: Um I started well I, I started preaching and because of that I eventually felt a call. So in a student council camp after seventh grade, one of my friends, a girl, a girl named Recy Lovis, she wanted to organize a nighttime Bible study. And somehow I became the de facto leader of that, and it, it grew a little bit by the first night. And by the second night, it was so incredibly large in this massive, massive circle outside that I just stood up and took leadership, and I started telling students to call out their favorite scripture verse. And I don't remember what I said, but I began extemporaneously explaining whatever scripture verses um, they were calling out to me. And two students um, prayed to accept Christ uh, those few nights during that week. And then I, I think I, and I had students give me their contact information if they didn't have a Bible. And then I went home, and my youth pastor gave me a bunch of Bibles, and I mailed them out to all of wow. those students and then I started leading a Bible study at school and it was summer of 99 NYC, Toronto, mm-hmm. where I started feeling a a call. Uh, my call I always resonated with Isaiah though because I never felt called. I felt like I had this tremendous opportunity to Mm. volunteer. You know, you read these stories in scripture and it says God calls some, but then you have the story of Isaiah and he has this amazing vision and he overhears God saying, who will I send? And Isaiah says, volunteers, send me. Mm. Here I am, Lord. And that's really how I feel like my calling was. I was interested in law when I was young. And I remember as early as fourth grade overhearing preachers on the radio and thinking, I guess it was the Lord even then, thinking, I could do that. And I put it out of my mind and told myself, no, I don't want to be a pastor because they don't make enough money. I Mm. want to go into law, which is quite ironic given where I am now and the amount I make. But that was my calling, ninth grade, and I started Mm. leading Bible study throughout high school and teaching and preaching and praise God for pastors who trusted me enough Mm. to let me preach when I was a teenager. They probably should have done more than trust me and should have coached me
0: Mm-mm. through
1: it. So I would recommend going a step further than our pastors and, sure. and and coaching. But they let me preach. I preached my first sermon in church, I think at age 16, mm-hmm. and began to do that regularly. And they would let me come back from SNU and NTS and and preach then as well. So I'm grateful for that practice.
0: So so kind of keep the story going. How did you end up at SNU?
1: I I didn't plan to go there, and then I found out about the ministry intern program. I planned to start out at County College, um, but I became a ministry intern, and I couldn't turn down all that scholarship money. And then I I tried to use that well, and I did all my basics at County College still. But I I did that, and really there was no question for me of what I ever wanted to do. So even as a freshman at SNHU, I, I wasn't interested in youth, I wasn't interested in children. Uh, I just always felt called to be a lead pastor. That's mm-hmm. really what it was. And I considered some other options. For a while, I even considered being a professor until I realized I, I'm interested in too many things, but I don't have the discipline to focus on one topic for a PhD. Mm-hmm. And really it became very clear that God was calling me to lead pastorate and doing that and seeing myself as a as a—I saw it even in, at SNU. I even wrote some papers about it or something, seeing myself as a bridge— pastor, recognizing that I was unique. Even then, one of our friends, Brian Matlock, gave me the nickname Grandpa Brannigan, you know, and so I, and I remember <laughs> he walked down the hall and snoo in the door, hey, morning, Grandpa, you know, and so people recognize even then I, I didn't quite fit with my age, and, mm. but I see that now as a way that God was preparing me to be a bridge pastor in that I'm technically a millennial, but I also feel like through God's grace, I'm, I'm able to interact well and, and lead well a church that I entered into, a very elderly mm. church, and create change that needed to happen, but do it at a pace that made sense. And hopefully, hopefully they would agree there um, with shepherding uh, and didn't get me fired as well, you know, right. being able to make those changes and do that.
0: Okay, so from SNU, then how can I continue that story? How did you end up at NCS? Uh,
1: graduated... SNU. We got married. My wife and I went to high school together, and she did her student teaching up at SNU. She was enrolled at Dallas Baptist. But we got uh, married in December of our senior year, and then we drove down for her graduation at Dallas Baptist, came back up here, did my graduation at SNU, and then packed up. That was a Saturday, Sunday, and then moved out on a Tuesday. Started my first class at seminary a week later, and I stretched out my MDiv over four years we stayed around uh, two years after uh, seminary because I was helping a nonprofit get established in Kansas City um, that works in apartments. And we spent three years on the Kansas side and then two years, ten, nine months on the Missouri side working in an apartment, doing relational evangelism, working for that nonprofit. Mm-hmm. And I continued that work and did more until. Um, September of 2012 was when we really started praying in earnest to come back home Mm. to DFW area. Mm -hmm. So, And that kind of leads us to the church setting. So we found out we were expecting our first September of 2012, and we started praying these five really big, big prayers. And that's how we knew, and we kept going back to that in the hardest times at the church knowing that God answered these prayers, and, and clearly it was Him. And so despite how hard it is now, we are where we're supposed to be. So I work still for an organization called Community Life that works in apartments, and we place teams, usually a young married couple or two single guys, two single gals, on site. And it's it's an amenity that the apartments advertise, but it's, it's really ra- relational evangelism on the property. You welcome residents when they move in, check in on them halfway through their lease and you're, you're throwing parties paid for with an activity budget from the property uh, to create a culture of community on site. Uh, there's only two organizations in the nation that do that work, and we're the younger and much smaller of the two. But what goes in leads into the first big prayer was the other organization called Apartment Life. They started years before us. They're 10 times our size. In other words, we don't want to make them mad, you know, and they're our friends, and they started just down the road from where I pastor now. So our organization had this policy, we still do, to not enter the whole Dallas-Fort Worth marketplace Mm -hmm. um, with our company. And when we've been offered contracts at apartments there, we turn them down. But my wife and I began praying in September of 2012 that our organization would have a contract working with an apartment complex where we could live at, live on site, in... A metro area that our organization has said we will not enter that wow. market so that would have been a massive prayer for god to answer that and i was really re- ready to begin serving as a lead pastor and so we began praying as well that a nazarene church would open up mm. um, that i could begin pastoring and we also began praying that that nazarene church would be close to the apartments that we would live in mm. Because it doesn't help us if, you know, the church is on West Fort Worth and the other one's an hour and a half away in other side of Dallas, you know, and and then we also began praying that that Nazarene church would become available for me to start serving in in the summer of 2013 Mm -hmm. because my wife was in a teaching contract and our son was born in May. We couldn't leave before he was born. And then the fifth big prayer was that the apartments would also become available in the summer of 2013 so that we can make that transition all at once so if god had made any one of those prayers happen it would have been awesome and i talked with our ds in december of the of 2012 and he said well there's one church available but they want someone older so you're out (laughs) and there's this other one available called grace tabernacle but they have already reached out to crossroads tabernacle pastor Corey jones church and they have decided that they're going to close and give their entire facility to Crossroads Tabernacle. Oh, wow. And and their building will become Crossroads Tabernacle West Campus. So, Chris, that one is out. And, you know, in spite of everything else, if any church was available in December, it's not going to be available in May. They want to get a pastor right away. So I said, sure. well, that's very encouraging. Thank you. <laughs> And so we just continued to pray. So from September to mid-March, we prayed those big five prayers every night together. And nothing, and I mean nothing, happened. Mm. And then early in March, the second week of March, this apartment management company that helped start our Christian nonprofit, they suddenly got the contract to manage an apartment complex in southwest Fort Worth. And they manage a lot of properties that whose owners don't let our program come in there. But we thought, well, that's encouraging. And we spent the week down of spring break, my wife's spring break down there. And on the Saturday, I think it was March 17th, I get a call from our district superintendent. And he says, well, I just hung up with Pastor Corey Jones, and he's— stopped that whole satellite campus plan. He doesn't feel like they are ready to open a second campus. Mm -hmm. He knew I was in town. I was shamelessly promoting myself. I said, hey, I'm going to preach at Arlington First Church of Nazarene Sunday if you want to hear me speak. So he knew I was in town, and he said, well, just had this call. Would you be interested in interviewing at this church if they can make it work. And a little bit later, he called back and an interview was scheduled for Wednesday night. Oh, wow. And so we interviewed and it went well. And they asked me to preach that Sunday at the church. Well, my boss from the apartment work, he knew all along that I've been praying to, to come back to this area and been praying, praying, praying. And he knew about this contract that Our management company had helped start us it just picked up and while i'm waiting to preach that following sunday my boss says well why don't you go talk to the apartment manager of this property that marquette management just picked up who knows maybe we'll get it and so on my way over there with my wife kelly she says now why are we going over to meet with this apartment manager and i explained to her you know you want the apartment manager to be on board because if, if they're not, it might not happen. So if she likes what we're pitching to her, there's a good chance that we might um, be able to move in there and do the program. And so that was Friday at 10. Well, We, we did not understand how much God had already been working. Mm-hmm. We didn't need to pitch the program to her. We found out immediately the program was already in the budget, and the two-bedroom, two-bath apartment that they set aside for the team to live in, it was already ready. Wow. So by noon on Friday we had the exact apartment unit number of where we would be living when we moved down here. And we thought, well, this is encouraging. (laughs) And then Sunday I preached, and the church was so small they didn't have to do a church vote. The board could allow the DS to appoint. So the board and the district superintendent do a five-minute meeting. They walk out, and the district superintendent says, congratulations, you're the new pastor. And then I said, great, see you later, because there was a bad snowstorm coming to Kansas City. And we immediately left. (laughs) And and, uh, we were 30 minutes away when the snow starts falling. And and then I just started sending video updates Uh, after that via YouTube and asking for them to pray. and, And my first Sunday was June 9th of 2013. So we prayed these big prayers. that, And they all had to work together at basically the same time. Mm -hmm. And nothing happened, but we just kept praying and praying and praying. But months went by, and from a Saturday at noon, it was straight up noon when he called, to the following Sunday, all of those five prayers were answered. So it was this amazing... Amazing testimony of of God's grace and hearing our prayers. And I describe it as the the Exodus moment when you leave Egypt, an amazing miracle. But then (laughs) begins the wilderness because I'm now the pastor of a church, remember, who said, yeah, basically we're dead. We just need to call the time of death and give this building away. That's what I inherited as pastor. So it was very low morale. Everything had shut down because they were already planning to close The other church was sending over teams to help with worship. They had taken detailed tours of the building. I mean, that plan was in motion, Mm. so everything is shutting down. They're just waiting to have the plug pulled on them. Mm. So I come in to that, and we averaged 26 in weekly attendance in June of 2013. And I'm preaching to an average of 26 people, mainly elderly uh, widows, in a sanctuary that seats 300. So that just accentuates... Mm how how death it it felt i i say it's it kind of smelled of death when you're in there you know you just realized there was people were kind of ready mm. to give up and yeah. close and let another church take it on and they were kind of excited that a young pastor came on but i, I could tell some of them were thinking oh man we got to keep on going so that was really tough wow but we we have a great story of that church and it, it was um on the far western side of Fort Worth, it was actually planted by um, Assistant DS of the Abilene District at the time in 1964. Mel McCullough was the technically the one who helped start that church, okay. and. Um, it was a typical white middle-class neighborhood, uh, but the neighborhood started changing very, very rapidly in a small amount of time. It, it started to—the income of the immediate area started to go down pretty quick, and culturally it became much more diverse, culturally mm-hmm. and ethnically. And, and the neighborhood changed faster than the church knew how to change with it. Sure. Uh, to the point that it became really an all-white church, mm-hmm. but within 600 feet— in all directions, there's these apartments filled with nothing but African-Americans. Mm-hmm. So it was really interesting dichotomy of who was walking in Sunday mornings and who's standing out watching on the front porch in right. these apartments. And it's all Section 8 all around there and duplexes. Mm-hmm. And praise God, we began to change and uh, grow. And we did so much effort early on in, in reaching out to our community. And I wish I could take credit for the culture diversity we have now, but but really, that outreach efforts they didn't really work in in terms of we reached out to these people through some event and now they're coming to our church but god began to send us uh culturally diverse ethnically diverse people Uh, we have one of our strongest uh, leaders now um her and her uh, children and now her husband attend and for the longest time they were the only black family which i know was a tremendously difficult thing for them To be the only black family. And I talk about tipping points. It just, for so long, we didn't have, we hadn't reached any of those tipping points. If you were elderly and white, you walk in and you felt comfortable. But if you were younger or black or Hispanic or Asian, you walk in and you immediately knew, you could tell, there's no one else like me. But Mm -hmm. praise God for some people of different backgrounds who came in, could clearly tell they were. Different from all the white people around, and yet they stuck with it and they, mm. and they believed in this church. So now we're a church of white, um, black, Mexican born in America, and Mexican born in Mexico, and Filipino, all in one, as well as Caribbean. We have a, a woman from Montserrat. Mm. And this summer, Lord willing, we will have an Indian. We've uh, begun partnering with the district to reach out to Asian Indians in our area. As well. So it's become this incredibly culturally diverse place. And now we're, uh, we have other churches. So we have a culturally diverse campus. So we are five churches and a funeral home and one building.
0: Okay, wait, 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 back up a little bit. Well, um, I read a blog post that you wrote, um, I don't know, a while back, maybe a year ago. And you were talking about this cultural diversity. Yeah. But you talked about a few things that you did to nurture that. And I'm just curious if you could talk to us about um, the way that you might have gone about as pastor acclimating your people to the idea or working them through the reality of what it looks like, how to be hospitable.
1: Yeah, well, I try to be really, really open and blunt about it, for one. Constantly reminding us as a people, saying look, this is not as it should be. We are mainly white, and our community right around here is not. And, and and regularly talking about how we all, and even me as a pastor, you know, regularly joke about the fact, I'm a young, young white kid, you know, from the middle-class suburbs, so there's constantly going to be things that I might say or do that I, I don't even realize come off as culturally insensitive or even racist, and we've got to recognize that, and we've got to reach our... Uh, community. Um, uh, One of our leaders now, uh, she's uh, African-American, and she's the leader of our day camp. And at the end of our day camp, we've invited any children who were saved during that to be baptized. And just one example that blew me away, and she just said it in passing, was she's going to change the date of our baptismal and the end of year, end of uh, day camp celebration, push it up a little bit. Because in the past, it's been right at the end of summer, right before school starts. And this was just a passing comment to her, and so I'm hiding the fact that my mind was blown from never thinking about it. She talked about if you do that end-of-year day camp slash baptismal celebration on a Friday, the young black girls getting baptized might not have enough time to have their hair redone before Monday. And I, just hiding the fact that I'm the naive white kid, and I never thought about that, never thought as the pastor, oh my goodness, I need to be thinking mm. about the most ideal times for families in my community if we're going to do a baptismal service. I never, I have two boys, you know, and one of them is redhead. You know, we don't have to think about mm. that. And it was this great reminder of how we're doing things and even when a plan a baptismal service that I never would have think about thought about being white but we so we started just reaching out in our community. Uh, what really started help is I moved into the parsonage we ended our apartment ministry work and I moved into the parsonage. so now I'm I'm there you know there, there's a little more cultural diversity now the joke for quite a while was, We're the one white family on this street, you know, and
0: so you're close to the church.
1: Yeah, I'm on the church property. Oh right. Now, and everyone knows where the pastor's house is, you know, and so it's it's, and there's a Goodwill literally across the street from us, and so if homeless people will walk in there and they need help, Goodwill bless them, they will just send them right over to the pastor's house over here, and so then I come back and because Goodwill can't you know just give away stuff for free, and then I come back with the homeless guys at the and the goodwill. And so everyone knows where the pastor lives now. You know, we kind of stand out, especially my fair-skinned, red-headed little boy, you know, in this predominantly black street. But so we we worked on that, working to, to encourage an, a culturally diverse leadership. Mm. Uh, so our—but um, again, it, it wasn't even so much me. The biggest contribution I could say I had was— praying for that, recognizing it wasn't there, recognizing I probably wouldn't even know what it takes to create that diversity, but just praying for it, talking openly about it, uh, and then really faithfully serving our community. Mm. So over the years, our church, similar to many, had the the typical white flight. So our church was being supported by faithful, godly people who at some point in the past, they moved away from the church. So our core, all of our core lived 30 minutes from the church. Oh, wow. So that's going to be very difficult to serve that community. But we started to have this laser-like focus on just serving the immediate community, which meant we're serving people almost exclusively who are not white. Mm. And then that constant interaction, that constant service, that was one thing that really, really helped um, but it it was it was tough and it was and it's slow. Um, and and we've also partnered with other churches. Uh, so having other churches in our building that are led by non-white pastors and whose membership is predominantly non-white, that is helping us in a, indirectly reach people that we couldn't reach. You know, I talk about that a lot. I say, I want to reach non-white peoples, I want to reach my black neighbors and my Hispanic neighbors, but I recognize even though I'm comfortable with them in our church, they may not be comfortable. So praise God, we've got other churches pastored by others, uh, uh, black and um, Korean, um, who they can reach people who I can't reach and our church mm-hmm. can't reach.
0: Well, tell me about those partnerships. How did all that happen?
1: One was ha- had happened already okay. before I arrived, Hanayin, which means one, Uh, one in Christ, I believe, Hanayin Korean Church of the Nazarene. And they meet in our, we have a massive, massive gym. It's too big. Uh, And inside it, it's really like two gyms combined. So we have the main gym on one side, and then the whole second one, in a sense, is a big kitchen. It's almost fully commercial, a large chapel, a large storage room, and then rooms above it. Mm. Well, in that chapel is where our Korean church Meets, and so that was meeting before I arrived, okay. um, and then I began praying for more diversity and trying to use our building well, and praying that God would send us uh, people to use that. And I think the Lord answered that prayer one day when He put in the mind of a 76-year-old feisty black woman, Jean Melton. Mm-hmm. Uh, he put our church in uh, her mind as she's praying. She has this Bible study that she's been doing, and she's wanting to to kind of take it to the next step of actually planting a church. And she's wondering where are we gonna meet? And Pastor Jean has spoken in a way that only she can. She says she's talking to the Lord and the Lord showed her our church. And she tells the Lord, God, are you sure? That's a white church. <laughs> um and and sure enough, she came to us and I and I um I work to be very open with her as well. I said, I would love for you to come here, but I will tell you, in my very, very limited experience, I've seen um, the, the black and other ethnic minority churches just destroyed with a health and wealth and a prosperity gospel, and you are welcome here as long as you don't have a plan of, robbing the poor people in this community of their money with false hopes as you drive around in your expensive car and, and everything. And she wasn't into that. And and so for nine months, um, she um, worshiped in there with her church, and we didn't even charge her anything. She's now paying something now uh, because she volunteered to start paying. And then I I put out a Craigslist ad for using our space better because, <laughs> yeah, I know.
0: Tell me about that. Yes.
1: Okay. So you got to remember when I arrived, we were averaging 26 in weekly attendance, financially supported predominantly by elderly people, mm. many of whom are giving out of their social security income. And the, the church peaked in attendance as of uh, in 1996, they averaged 149 in weekly attendance. We have in total, Parsonage, gym, and main building, 22,000 square feet and it was in severe disrepair. The gym to this day still has not been completed. Mm. Um, our church is debt-free, praise God, because of the faithful work of people for many years, but they just burned out. Mm. And so the gym was has been such a shell of a building, AC units. They weren't even installed. They're just sitting there, and they mm. disintegrated. So we have massive, massive bills constantly in a very very inefficient building the o- oldest parts were from 66 and it was added on to over the years in ways that uh, to be honest don't meet code now okay um and and so we have extremely high um repair bills and utility bills overhead, cost. overhead costs they're just astronomical And uh, insurance. So I just put out a Craigslist ad saying we would love to partner with more churches. Our space would be good for daycare. I listed off all of these things. (laughs) And a funeral home reached out to me. And they wanted to start their second location. Their first one was already in a church similar to ours with too much space. And they have this amazing philosophy of serving grieving families Mm and burying their loved ones with dignity while not charging much. Mm. Uh, and so I've learned a lot now about the what seems to be near extortion of in the funeral industry. So because they rather than have their own space, they rent space from us. Mm. Their overhead is extremely low. Our certificate of occupancy standards as a 50-year-old religious building are not nearly what it would have to be for a for-profit moving in a, a building occupying it in twenty sixteen. Sure. So their overhead is very, very low. We had to rezone some of our space. It's now taxable property with the county. Wow. We had to do some stuff to make that happen and we did some construction so that you don't have children accidentally walking into the funeral home section. (laughs) And and, Yeah. (laughs) There and yes, there are bodies regularly stored in part of our church, but you wouldn't know it. We had a, a couple they started attending and six weeks of faithful attendance after that, they joined us for a Saturday work day. And I took a shortcut with the man through our funeral home to get outside somewhere. And he didn't know it was there. We have a oh, sign no. out front, but he didn't even know it was there, which shows you that you could really, you can be in our building and have no clue. We have nondescript doors from the inside. You just think there's closets, but there's a funeral home through there. But the amazing thing is how we're now serving poor, grieving families. Mm. Um, so a lot of the business that Church Angels Funeral Home gets is uh, from families who've been turned away from other funeral homes. There's a lot of funeral homes who they will not serve you as a family if you don't pay up front. Duane, our funeral director, said he was telling me about a family who he'd just met with, and they had just left this other funeral home. And that funeral home said it was going to be $10,000 for a funeral. Dwayne's average rate is $2,200 with a casket and a plot and everything. And and often people don't pay that because he's kind enough to serve them before they pay it up front, and he'll put them on payment plans. And he tells me often that... These poor families—they—they're dodging their last payments. So he's serving people in need, and actually, he's—he and the other funeral home—they're part of a nonprofit where they—they they will not turn anyone away, wow. regardless of of their ability to pay, which you never think about. What do you, you know? We're serving the community, and I'm, I have a heart for serving the poor, and never thought about where do these very poor families in our neighborhood go if a loved one has died, and it's become this amazing ministry because uh, I'm also learning a lot of the families that he serves they're people who don't have money or or maybe they don't they've just decided to stop investing more money in this loved one who now died because they were a drug addict or just had severe problems so he's he's buried a lot of drug addicts and people who've burned their bridges mm. with their family, and their family may have spent already thousands and thousands of dollars on this loved one, and they don't have it yeah. anymore. And now they're seeking out the funeral home because they just don't have it, and, and mm. he's not turning them away, and we're able to serve him, and he's a member of our church, so it's this beautiful partnership that happens. Uh, so they found out about that, and I became known as the crazy pastor who's looking for people to join And um, Abundant Life is this large, it's a 300-strong, all-black church. And they were in a shopping center, and their rates were going to go through the roof. And they have land that they want to save to build on. So they reached out to me, and we made that happen, where they moved out of their facility and into ours. And we gave them the main sanctuary. I had actually vacated on Sunday mornings. I'd vacated worship out of the main sanctuary and moved us into the fellowship hall. Mm -hmm. And the only reason i explained was the efficiency reasons you know it's the lighting it's all fluorescent so it's cheaper to light and it's cheaper to heat and cool because it's got a low ceiling i didn't you know continue with the other explanations of i'm praying for someone to rent the sanctuary Mm -hmm. but so they started using our main sanctuary and they're able to save tremendously so so many have blessed us and so we wanted to bless this church um, so we only charge them 500 a month in rent, and then they pay the gas and electric on the main building. They've raised the rent on themselves twice. <laughs> they just come in and say, we don't think we're paying you enough. Here's an extra $100. So at first they raise it to 600 and now it's $700, and they're always spending money on capital improvements around Aww. our place. And we now meet in our gym chapel, but for a, for a while we were meeting in a fellowship hall, and the main sanctuary as you enter is on the right and our fellowship hall is on the left, and and you got to joke about it, because that's just the only way, and you just got to admit the obvious. For a long time, it was, in general, blacks on the left and whites on the right, and we had people not knowing where to go, and so a a couple who's a member of our church now, this young white couple, they walked into the main sanctuary, and and the ushers of abundant life say, "I, I think you're looking for Grace Tabernacle, which is which is over there, but it's just created this awesome opportunity for for partnership and mm-hmm. and love. i I reached out to them after one of the most recent shootings this summer, and I just I, I stood up and I said, i I want to say, as a white pastor of a historically white church, we love you, and we're we're praying for you. But God has really done some amazing. Work in that in breaking down barriers. So they moved in July of 2015, you know, and there's just so much racial tension has built up mm-hmm. since then. So it's been a it's been a wonderful, wonderful partnership. Um, and so now and then our our newest church, um, Newbrook Church, they're two and a half years old, and I they left out a sign at a park last summer, <laughs> and I saw their sign. And I didn't know that they were even around. So I met the pastor and said, hey, just want to meet you. If I can help you in any way, pretty much the only thing I could help you with is space. So if you ever need space, they were meeting in a school. I said, you're welcome to it. And he's, you know, he didn't even know me and probably thinking, this pastor's weird. But a few months back, he reached out and he said, hey, we're getting exhausted setting up and tearing down Mm. and the school and it costs a lot of money and we have nowhere else to meet any other time during Mm. the week other than my home. And that's a lot with his two kids. And so uh, we found a way to work it out. And so they now use the fellowship hall and uh, they meet Sunday nights. And uh, so that works out well for them. And they're they're working in there and they're praising God that they don't have to set up and tear down every week and use space for midweek services. Mm -hmm. But once again with them, we made a commitment that we're not gonna be in the for profit business, we're in the nonprofit business, right? And so we're just serving and trying to be as as open handed as possible. And churches are glad to partner with us and paying the bills. So this new church, they they pay the water bill, which mm-hmm. averages three hundred a month. But then as soon as they moved in, they blessed us by cleaning all the carpets in the main building on their Aww. side, which costs eight hundred dollars, you know, so we're not charging much and yet People are just blessing us mm. in return, you know, and, and God's been faithful. And so I I went into this and in trying to get our space filled to pay the bills, but I quickly realized, you know what, God will pay our bills. We don't need to do this as a way to pay the bills. We have a way, even as a small church, to bless others mm. in ways that aren't just small, but some big ways. And so we've just made a commitment that we will continue to bring in other churches and ministries and share our space well and not and not charge a lot. And our our DS gets on to me and says, You gotta be charging more Chris. No, no, and, and but God has been faithful to provide. You know, which doesn't mean it's not tough. You know, I'm on our, our children are on Medicaid and um, we're on food stamps, and with the addition of our fourth child, the government thought Okay, now that costs more. So we're now technically below the poverty line, wow. uh, you know, and yet God has been faithful. And I was sharing with intern groups up at SNU today. I, I put on an intern sheet. I said, you know, I, we're not going to pay as much as other churches would, apparently, the going rate for an internship. And I said, hey, here's what it is. Yeah, it's not a lot, but I'll just tell you my story. And I had the chance to share with them how I get paid very little, but I don't live on little, uh, because God has been faithful in in giving. We don't we don't seek out money. We don't even pass the plate most Sundays. I forget to announce that our offering plate is in the back. And yet God's faithful, and He provides. And on that day that the fifth church, we decided what they would charge. What they would charge them. Um, water bill three hundred a month on average. We walked out of that meeting, and then I found out one more compressor and AC unit went out in our sanctuary, mm. and we we're already down one. There's only three. So that means there's only one working. Mm. And I this is seconds after I finish a meeting saying, all right, we are not going to make a profit off of this church. We are going to bless them. And then I found out about this. We, we need $15,000 of AC work in our gym and insulate. Oh, it's, it's terrible. And I'm stressing as I'm walking home into the parsonage. I'm praying, God, I just turned down an opportunity for more money, and I found out about this. How are you going to make this happen? I need money. Right. And I I check our mail. And a family who moved out of state six months earlier, I haven't, I probably should have followed up with them and sent them a card or something. I hadn't talked to them at all. They sent me a $1,000 check wow. in the mail. You know, and I just start crying. One day, I was so, it was so tough. I was so desperate. I'm, I've got my son in the stroller and my dog next to me and we're walking out the park and Truly, I'm desperately paying or praying that I would find a hundred dollar bill on the ground because I'm just so desperate. And I said, God, please. And I believed in faith, the Lord's grown my faith. I believed in faith I would get it, and it, He didn't give it to me. But a week and a half later, a man who doesn't go to our church, but he joins us sometimes on Wednesday nights, he stopped by and he gave me an envelope and it had a hundred dollar bill in it. And I was reminded, you know what? Yeah, sometimes God will give you a hundred dollar bill on the side of the ground over there, on the side of the road. But usually God chooses to bless you through the generosity of others. And that's mm. how we've lived. You know, I, my mobile banking app gave me a warning the other day and said, you are spending an average of $1,600 a mo- more a month than you bring home in paychecks because, my, you know, it knows what deposits are paychecks. Mm. So I didn't even know that, and the bank's telling me, hey, uh, you spend 1600 a month more than you earn in wages, but we're not in debt, and we don't have credit cards, mm. and we don't spend what's not in the bank. And it was this amazing, very clear reminder from the bank, oh my goodness, on average, that's how much we're being blessed mm. from others, and and God is paying our bills, and we're able to bless others, and you know, we, we were praying one day, our day camp director, this massive ministry we do, I, I she'd done so much and I said, Teal, I wanna start paying you. I don't know how we're gonna get the money. We we need let's pray right now. Let's pray. We need the money, I wanna I, we started paying her two hundred a month and or a week for the summer and I and I'm praying with her and and she goes back to the day camp and within thirty minutes. Pastor Jean from What Ministries Church, that 76-year-old fiery black woman, she calls me up all on her own. And we hadn't charged her a dime, her church, the whole time, nine months. And she said, I want to start paying you 200 a month to the church. I thought, okay. And it's just one more time that God has He's been faithful and He's provided And our our day camp is this massive ministry where we're serving so many. And we can't do it on our own. We partner with the Tarrant Area Food Bank. Mm -hmm. And our church um, of, it wasn't even 40, um, in the second year, before the second year of our our summer day camp, it's from 8 to 3 all summer long, I challenged our church to start praying for 300 students in our day camp. And they laughed at me. I think we had averaged like 35 the week, uh, the year before. But I believed in faith that we would have it. We actually closed our registration at 294. Uh, and then, dumb young pastor that I am, I I remembered after that tough summer that Jesus commanded us to pray for workers for the harvest, not for the harvest. <laughs> So we had an average of in 2015, and uh, our daily average for 44 days was 88 kids a day. Wow, averaging between 37 and 39 people per Sunday. Mm. And we're serving this in a gym that doesn't have working AC. and so this year I'm praying for 300 workers. Um, and youth groups to come help us out, but we, and it's just amazing. And and that's one more you know asking about the change. One more way that we begin to reach our diverse mm-hmm. community and interact with them and show them that we love them mm-hmm. is uh, we're more and more diverse, but uh, predominantly white church serving predominantly black group of children in our our summer day camp. You know, and 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 interacting with their families and loving them and. Um, giving opportunities to showcase what their kids are doing Sunday mornings. It's it's been a really cool thing to see that happen. But even that, we didn't have the money to do it. We just did it. And so we've learned as a church to pray more and more, not do we have the money to do it, but does God want us to do it? If he does, he'll provide. If he doesn't, why are we wasting our time anyway? And so we've done it, and we've been... Faithful, and we lost a little bit of money that f- first year. And uh, we someone heard about what we were doing, and we got a twenty thousand dollar grant <laughs> wow. to do it. A- a- and then, still, we're thinking, How are we going to do it another year? And then, last December, we had some water damage, damaging rooms that we didn't care about and needed to be remodeled anyway. And we got twenty six thousand dollar insurance check. You know, that insurance company actually dropped us last month from too many claims, you know, but God has provided. <laughs> In all of these ways, and we continue to have these discussions saying, how are we going to do this? We don't have the money. Mm -hmm. And we just pray more and find out, yeah, God wants us to serve in these ways. If he doesn't want us to, we'll stop. But if he does want us to, he'll provide, and he will find a way to to make it happen.
0: So, okay, say a young pastor is listening to this, and they're thinking wow, I want to help my church pray more. Um, how would you talk about that journey? What, what Do you guys have prayer meetings during the week? Have you helped people find resources to help them pray more? Do you pray together as a church in different ways? How might a young pastor go about helping their church kind of risk for the kingdom and pray bigger?
1: Well, first, I'm woefully neglectful as a pastor in teaching about prayer. I'm very introverted by nature. Mm. And so I'm learning that's one of my biggest weaknesses, is praying these big prayers myself and yet not teaching others. So that's been a weakness that we've been working on, but challenging them to, to pray and fast. Really, a corner was turned for me when I read a, a short biography by uh, YWAM publishers. Mm. They put out this small Heroes of the Faith series or something on George Mueller. Founder of Orphanages in, in Bristol. And at his peak, before he died, they were housing 1,100 orphans. And throughout his entire ministry life, he never asked for a dime of money at all. He just prayed. And 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 he didn't pray, Lord, send me money. He prayed, Lord, what do you want me to do? Mm. And he just listened to what Lord wanted him to do. And like I said, if the Lord doesn't want you to do it, well, don't bother doing it. But if, he, if you're certain he wants you to do it, he will provide. Now, he also lived a simple life and sold a lot of possessions and lived extremely simply. So he stewarded what God gave him well. But I started reading that, a short bio on him, and then I read his, his autobiography, his, his full one, not the abridged one. And it really started to increase my faith. Mm-hmm. I, I was never, I never had the the gift of faith before I, I came here and I started to see that develop in me, uh, praise God for it. Um, out of the desperation, I'm a learner. I'm a off the charts nerd, so I just love to learn, and, and that's my like literally that is my only hobby is learning. I'm a nerd. <laughs> that's all I do, and yet everything I'd learned for so many years about the church and church growth and church planting and all this stuff, it wasn't. It wasn't working. None mm. of it worked. Um, or it seemed to work, and then it didn't work, and then I was humbled even more. So in our first year, I got to put in our in my pastoral report that we grew by 97%, and then we lost it all the second year. Mm. And, and this was so humbling. And so I stopped putting so much pride in my ability to learn my way out of a problem mm. you know I just started praying because I'm just so desperate and I'm praying because my marriage is on the rocks because we it's so tough and we left what we loved in Kansas City with a great church and a great small group filled with people just like us it was so easy you know it's just a bunch of young seminarians and my wife loved her job and I'm going through my own depression because what am I doing here this mm. church is dead and I just started having to pray mm. um just just pray um and, and praying big, big prayers and praying that, that God would allow me to stay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also moved slowly. So I had a plan three and a half years ago to close our church and restart it. And we're only now beginning to implement that. We still haven't closed. So I wasn't in a hurry. I, I didn't change anything. I'm a long-winded preacher so that changed. Sermons or Service times got longer. But the content of Sunday morning and how it went, I didn't mess with the worship on it, mess with that stuff. But I would just slowly create changes over time, very small things, just pick my battles so carefully uh, of of what I planned to do. And, and, and we're a very different church now than we were. But I did not come in with... Guns blazing to make a bunch of changes and prove anything. I quickly was humbled, realize how little I learned. I knew anyway, but I told students at SNU today that I said, I, I now know so many people who are out of ministry because they were arrogant when they first came in, and they they pushed too hard, and and they left in burnout, and they made. Poor choices, and it was and it was a poor fit. You know, maybe they or the church board and the DS or all of the above weren't honest about the fact that you know this is not a good fit mm-hmm. to the young pastor. You've got to say you've got to be honest who you are. If you're a young pastor, any age, but if you're a pastor, especially you can be desperate as a young one. You know, like I, I understand the desire to you got to be in a church. You got to you know you don't want to be working at Starbucks the rest of your life. You have got to find a church, and oh, this one's not great, but I'll take it like dating you know you're lying to each other the the church board is lying about how flexible they are and willing to change and the pastor is lying about how great they are and everyone's lying you know if we would just be honest you know and i'm not speaking to the church board today i'm speaking to probably pastors so i would say be honest about who are you and who has god called you to and even if you're desperate for a job believe that God will provide for you. And don't go somewhere where you're going to frustrate yourself and you're going to frustrate the people you serve. Go somewhere that you know God wants you to be at. Um, But in November of 2015, I had a really, really weird experience where just in a matter of seconds, I started bawling on the floor. I was all alone at the church. And the best way to describe it would be like some sort of vision. It was really weird. I mean, it was just weird. (laughs) But I had this moment where I felt like I was being bombarded with words from the Lord and saying, you will be at this church for at least 20 years. You will see your prayers answered of this neighborhood transformed. You will see your prayers answered of your church starting to own a lot of the property on the street so that you can use it for intern housing and affordable low-income housing Mm -hmm. that's actually taken care of by a good landlord for once, you know, and, and, and ministry housing and uh, um, transitional sober living housing. And it was this amazing experience. But when I, and I qualify with it by saying one of these days I might find out I heard the Lord wrong, but I don't think I did. And when I feel like, when I heard what I think was the Lord saying, you're going to be at this church at least 20 years, then that took some pressure off me saying, okay, Lord, I feel like you've affirmed what I'm praying is is in the, the right direction and that I don't need to hurry. Mm. If I'm going to be here at least 20 years, then my, my constant fears about this church closing because we don't have money, that must not be reality. Mm. That must not be our future if I've heard you correctly. Um, and if I've heard you correctly, I should continue to be pr- prayerfully seeking out duplexes and fourplexes in our community even though we don't have the money to pray for it because if i did hear you correctly we will really will have those mm. one day so i don't need to have this small faith mentality thinking oh we can't afford it whatever but having that long-term approach really helped me and so i've made tough decisions i've turned down requests from ds's to have my resume be submitted i will not i believe for me I heard God, so if I let my resume go out, I'd be going against what God wants, you know, so I have this long-term approach, so I'm still young, I'm 31, but I'm not in a hurry to change anyone, Um, and I'm blessed by these elderly, sweet people in our church. I'm sometimes embarrassed by the stuff they post on Facebook, especially during the political time, Um, but I love them, Mm. and they have been faithful, and they are, they've are. they stuck with it. Maybe they didn't know how, as a 75-year-old white woman, to reach this younger, all-black community. But it's not because they didn't want to. They just didn't know how. And I, I heard a great quote one time contrasting a cattle drive and a flock of sheep. And this man, I don't remember who it was, but he said cowboys drive but shepherds lead mm. and he was picturing you know the cattle drive the old the old picture of a cattle drive the cattle are always running and the cowboys are always driving them to run because they're in a hurry to go be slaughtered but a shepherd you picture a shepherd with uh, their sheep i know the analogy breaks down cuz you do eat some sheep but mainly it's for wool right <laughs> So don't take the analogy too far, but he described this picture of, you know what, a shepherd, if a shepherd's goal is to keep these sheep around for years to, to use their wool, there's no hurry. Mm. They don't have to be driven fast to this train to take them to the slaughterhouse. There's no hurry. This shepherd is going to be with these sheep for years. So we don't have to race to our destination. We need to go at a pace that the sheep can handle we don't need to drive them and we don't need to push for that change i i did also start to learn that change is tougher for some than it is for others so rather than trying to push change i started praying that god would help me see who's more open to it and so for some ministries that might kind of sociologically cause someone in our church core to feel out of their comfort zone. We told them, I told them Sunday mornings about this great ministry that you, your church is doing, but they weren't, they weren't part of it, right? And, and those who were more comfortable with change and kind of the, the, the pioneers, we worked together on it. And then I went back Sunday mornings and I constantly gave updates. Hey, let me tell you what your church has done and over time, some of these sweet people might start joining, and they might come help us out. And, and it, but I didn't, I didn't try to get them to change.
0: So why are you, st- why are you still closing and reopening, or what is the hope with the with that transition? Yeah,
1: yeah. So so my predecessor changed the name to Wedgewood Church of the Na- or from Wedgewood Church of the Nazarene to Grace Tabernacle back in 2011. Okay. And uh, knowing him, and I've talked with him, um, I I understand that he was trying to do more than change the name. Right. He was trying to change an entire culture. There mm-hmm. there had been some you know problems and a um, l- lot of lot of difficulties there, mm-hmm. and he was working to change that mm-hmm. and change the culture. Mm-hmm. but in part, I, I think, never having done it, never done it myself, but I think part of the problem was there was just was not enough prep work that had been done right. And so the name did indeed change, but the culture, um, hearing from others and even from him, the, the culture did not. Okay. So the issues of, of dysfunction were still there mm-hmm. as a church. Mm-hmm. And one Sunday it was Wedgwood Church of the Nazarene. They made the official name change, and church met the following Sunday. And mm-hmm. worship was the same, and preaching was the same. It just they had a different logo. Mm-hmm. So they changed paint. Mm-hmm. So what happened was a name change, but nothing else. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's like one of those teenage garage bands that think if they have a new catchy name, they'll sound better. When really, they just need to practice more and not change their name. you know. And so we didn't have the cultural issues addressed mm-hmm. there. We were the same people. Mm-hmm. But very, very slowly, we begin to, to change. And I saw myself and I've, you know, described to our church, I saw one of my key roles there. It was to be like a, a physical therapist. I, I said this Sunday to them, when I arrived, I saw a church culturally, sociologically and spiritually that had become very rigid, the way someone has really lost mobility in an appendage from having a cast on for a Mm. long time. That can be remedied if you do some physical therapy, which is painful. Mm. And that's incredibly difficult. And that physical therapist is going to slowly cause you to stretch in ways that are so uncomfortable, you just want to punch them, right? But over time, you limber up. And so I shared even just Sunday about how our church, you know, to use this metaphor, it's... It's a limber church that's like doing a lot of yoga now because we've slowly and incrementally taken change well. So I had a in mind all along restarting the church. I did some training in that, church restarting, church planting, all of that. So that was my goal, end goal. But I saw that, well, just to take one example, some, a lot of people couldn't handle change well. Mm-hmm. So I needed to create incremental changes and create some small manipulated chaos Mm -hmm. so for example i moved us out of our sanctuary into our fellowship hall and we started worshiping out of there and i did that simultaneously with a sermon series that was very very discussion based Mm -hmm. so we sat around tables i stopped preaching it was more teaching it was almost like a college atmosphere Mm -hmm. And I I made that change, and I said, this is—and people got it. They understood, oh, change in location because of this unique sermon series. Mm. And I started to watch to see who can handle this Mm. because I knew, okay, if you can't handle meeting in this room versus this room Sunday mornings, you really can't handle other things. Right. Um, And and praise God, because of his grace, we—even though we did have people leave because of that exact change— they left well, and and they're still giving, which is awesome, and I appreciate it. I want them back, but they, they wanted that traditional sanctuary with the stained glass and the platform, but they couldn't handle meeting in the fellowship hall. And so I started doing things like that and just creating some changes, even if there wasn't—we didn't have to move out of the sanctuary. It just sat vacant for months, mm-hmm. about six months. And I started doing that, just creating some changes— where I, we do different things on Sunday morning to literally get kind of limber people up. And, and we, like, we have this one story. Oh, one of our, our key leaders, such a sweet um, woman. Um, she, I think, would even describe herself as a kind of a Martha personality. Sure. Always distracted by many things that don't seem that important. And yet she's been faithful and has loved me well and believed in me and stayed with it, despite of these changes that she's not comfortable with. And she started to change so much to where she will talk about herself as saying, I'm a different person. I don't stress about the things I used to stress about, about as church, and and I am and, and different. So I started to see some of these dear sweet older people who if you looked at them you think oh they might be really stodgy stick in the muds no it's awesome we got this a lot of older people who are incredibly progressive mm. while also praying that if if they couldn't handle the future changes that god would move them on in a in a good way um in a, in a way that didn't create schism or division. Mm -hmm. So from November through January of last year, I challenged our church to prayer and fasting. And two of the four prayers were, um, should I stay or should I go as a church member? And I said, you need to be praying this. Maybe you want to stay, but God's calling you somewhere else. And that happened. We had people who wanted to stay at our church, but God, for various things, one example, they had to move out of state to Colorado and then we had others who God moved them on to somewhere else and I also challenged them for two months every single Sunday I reminded them the other prayer was should Chris stay or go as your pastor Mm -hmm. I said you as a church need to be praying this regardless of your pastor you need to be praying I reminded them how often God moved people around in scripture and And they didn't necessarily stay in one place all the time because God had a plan for them somewhere else. I said, you need to be praying. Should I be your pastor, or should I not? And if you, as an individual, feel I shouldn't, you need to go talk with our our elected board leaders, and you need to talk about that. And if if many of you in our church start to feel that I shouldn't be your pastor, if God has told you that and you don't fire me, then you're in disobedience to what God wants for you in this church. Um, But what happened out of that is praise God they didn't find me, you know, and, and they started to truly begin to pray that recognize, okay, Chris is young and sometimes dumb and has some weird ideas, but we've prayed for two months and fasted about whether or not he should pastor us into the future. And we got our answer. So let's work together. Mm-hmm. On this, and i I feel like that was instrumental in how God worked in people's hearts to break down any potential opposition about you know silly things um so about half of our church from when I arrived is no longer there, mm. and yet no one left on bad terms. We're friends with them they left well is really, really good um leaving, you know, the best way. And and most of those cases, it didn't even have anything to do with me. It was other things that that took them away to other places. Um, But we became a different church slowly. And we have started to see that for those of us that have been around for years. But like I shared that story, Pastor Gene telling God, God, are you sure that's a white church? We still have this reputation in the community we may have been different, and especially now with so many cars coming and going, it's hard to know who's what. But the church does, or the community doesn't know that we are different. And, and and even with our our day camp, many of those families who serve and participate in our day camp, they don't they don't really know which church is leading it, and they're connected with leaders, but not necessarily the church, and they don't come on Sunday mornings. And so, in in part, it was this recognition of God's work. Mm. We are a different uh, people, um, but also I felt like I was called here for this work. So I remember, for years, all I did in my spare time was study church planting, and that's my passion. We've we've planted a Spanish-speaking church a little more than a year ago. We're getting ready this summer to help start a, a work among Asian Indians uh, with a. Um, Indian man his family from seminary um, from all our sarmal coming down and so we want to be a church planting church and so I think part I started recognizing you know what I there's a lot of aspects of church planting how I studied and planning for that and I I get how to do that in a church planting setting but I continually struggle with knowing how to apply that in an existing church so I'd really just talk to our leaders and I talked to our district superintendent I said, hey. Maybe in part it's just me, but I feel like I would be more sure of my footing in a church plant environment versus an established church. And, and maybe that makes no sense to anyone else. And it might just be me, but I, I, I know that. And so we've been working towards that and talking about it in those ways. So once we close, we, I've been talking about it to our church Grace Tabernacle is closing its doors. The old language of leaving a legacy, which a legacy was, it was a will, right? So, Grace Tabernacle is going to close. It's going to die and leave a legacy of a church building, uh, a pastor, and any members who want to stay to the new church. And the new church will inherit what this deceased church has has given it. But in part, I think that will also help really solidify the understanding among us that this is something new. And I think that's something difficult in a lot of older churches. I have very, very limited experience. I have no other vocational church experience other than this one. But it seems like there's often, even in our church historically, a connection between a resistance to change and our inability to grow as a church. And my predecessor got a lot of pushback with things like, we don't do that here. And even the name change was, he had people tell him, and I still to this day have had people tell me, it will always be Wedgwood Church of the Nazarene. Is it really the name they care about? No, it's, how did Wedgwood, quote, do church? And and there was resistance and there was cultural stuff with the name was the expectation and all of that. And, and I think that's what he faced was, well, pastor, you can call this place anything you want, but, but we're, we're not going to do it. You know, and praise God, that's not there. But in part, I think that is something that can help pastors. You need to have a DS who supports it. But the traditional Nazarene restart model has been somewhat similar. You have a church that closes. Um, our our old historic church in Pilot Point, Texas, is is been restarted now. And the church had struggled for many years. It was very, very, very small. And we kept the building as a district. And only in the last year, Dwayne Edwards has uh, taken that existing building and planted Grace Point Church of the Nazarene in Pilot Point, Texas. Mm-hmm. So we had an existing building, and I don't know, I haven't talked to him. Maybe some church members... Came and joined him from the old Pilot Point Church, but historically in our denomination, you know, I don't know history will tell whether or not it's been the best way to do it. But what has happened is they'll shut a church down if it finally closes, but maybe in part they just have the building. Churches are hard to sell. Church buildings are hard to sell, and the district has it. A church planter comes along and you plant something new in there. So that's what we've been trying to do as a hybrid approach. Um, but what I talked about with our our people is we had to get in the mindset of being a, a pioneer. Um, I talked about pioneers and, and settlers, right? The, the personality type of the average pioneer um, going out west, which even that I recognize is a bad analogy. Could analogy? It has sad history, but the average pioneer is often going to be a different personality type than the average settler. So the settler will come out after the pioneer has leveled the roads and created the towns and set up the general store, and the pioneer's back here out east saying, I don't want to bring my family out there, cut down the trees to make a farm. uh Uh-uh, someone else will do that. After you build a road, I'll come out there. And I talked about with our leaders in the church, you know, we need to redevelop a pioneer culture to build a church again um, and rebuild the infrastructure of the church, the ministries. I mean, everything had shut down, and I really kind of kept it shut down until we could address our culture issues. And so I said, this is what we need to be. We need to be a church with pioneers, that personality. In other words, you know, the, the common thing is you know, trying to reach families with young kids. And if you don't have a children's ministry for them, pastor, you're not going to reach them. Well, in a church plant mentality, you're open about the fact, saying, I'm not trying to reach families who are asking the question, do you have anything for my kids? I'm trying to reach families who ask the question, can I help you build a ministry for my kids and others' kids? You know, and so it's a different, in, in an established church, you know, and and I'm in the South in Texas, it may be different in other places, but we're still kind of have this church culture where there's this expectation, if you're an established church, I will show up to your church and consume the ministries you've provided. But we get, at least in Texas, you know, this understanding, oh, you're a new church, so you might not have anything for me. So people who are looking to be fed something, they might go somewhere else, the settler. But I want to replant and say, hey, I pastored a church, it closed, but I still got a building that we can worship in. Will you help create? Will you help start a new church with me? I've got some other people from the church I used to pastor. They're going to do that too. Because remember, the people who couldn't handle switching rooms in which to worship, they left. The people who couldn't handle the kind of flexibility exercises I was giving them, they left. So I kind of worked through God's grace in creating a culture where for the most part the only people left are the pioneers. They're just waiting for someone to lead us out there. And that's what we're doing. But in part that church plant will help us. We'll just be honest. We don't have these ministries for your kids or for your youth or whatever, because we're brand new church. But if you're the type of person interested in helping create that, whether whether it's not about you know Christian or non-Christian, it's really more that personality up front, they're, God will save them and reach them and work in their lives. It's about saying, will you help us build a brand new church from the ground up mm-hmm. in this building that we already own? I don't know if that makes sense, and it might not make sense to others, but it makes sense in my mind, and I'm the one going to do it. So... <laughs>
0: Um, so the last question I ask everybody is, um, what inspires you to to stay in the Church of the Nazarene? What is it that's keeping you here?
1: It's my heritage. I think there's a verse in Psalms where David says, "I have a godly heritage," or something like that. Um, I, I believe in our doctrine, and I love our church. My personality, I admit some of it's personality. I'm not someone who just runs away from something. I kind of just plod along and keep on with it. But um, I think running from something you don't like is the easy way out, right? If you see any organization that you're not thrilled with aspects of it, well, what has been accomplished by you leaving? Nothing. Mm. Right. Um, on the other hand, if you truly, truly just have fundamental disagreements with aspects of it, it, it's also unfair, and to be honest, possibly a little arrogant to try to force change on another organization at, at a fundamental level where there's just such disagreement. Maybe the most honest thing to do is say, "Hey, blessings, love you." You know, like we have churches, other congregations in our building, and we disagree on things doctrinally. And I don't try to convince those pastors to believe my way and vice versa. We have this loving fellowship where we're literally sharing space, but we're not trying to convince each other either. You know? mm. So there's that balance. But for me, my, my heritage begins with a faithful, poor Nazarene pastor who took his Saturdays preaching on a street corner that's my heritage. And that's not something I would abandon lightly. I love our church. I was recently in that town in the last month and saw it's a different building, but where that church is still. And there's faithful work happening there. So for me, it's never been a question of whether or not to. To leave it, I, I, I agree with our doctrinal stances anyway, so that probably makes it easier. But I am glad to give back to those who have given to me. Mm. So whether it's people or organizations, you know, I, I want I want to give back. I, I want to, in whatever ways I can, say thank you for your years of service and faithful. Instilling of biblical teaching on on Sunday afternoons after church as the chickens being plucked. Sorry, <laughs> you probably hate that, Brittany. but thankful. Thank you for teaching my great grandparents. Mm. Thank you for staying on my great grandpa Saturday after Saturday. Thank you for patiently waiting and being patient and gracious with my great grandmother who didn't want to give up her snuff and her dominoes. Thank you for teaching my grandma and raising her lovingly in this church. Thank you for raising my mother in this church. And thank you for raising a a woman strong in her faith who could help bring along what became my dad back to the faith. Thank you for raising me in the faith where I, I know what I believe. Thank you at an early age encouraging me, taking the interest in me, allowing me to preach Sunday mornings, writing me cards. Oh, the, the stories of faithful people. I am grateful for this imperfect church called the Church of the Nazarene. Uh, it is it perfect? No. Uh, what did Spurgeon say? He said if you find the right church, don't go to it, because as soon as you show up it'll be ruined. You know? like We are <laughs> imperfect people we're not perfect but it's given me so much and it's now giving my children so much loving people who love my three and a half year old and my three month old and I'm grateful to serve in whatever ways I can a group of people who have served me and my family for generations
0: Mm. If someone wants to get in touch with you, talk to you about your church or your context or your internship opportunities, where can they reach you?
1: Um, Our website's about to change, and I don't know when or when this will be aired. So the safest one would be my blog, chrisbranigan.net, C-H-R-E-S-B-R-A-N-I-G-A-N. Our our website currently is fortworthchurch.net. It's F-O-R-T spelled out, church.net. Um, in the next few months, we will close that. We'll probably keep the website open. But October of 2017, we'll launch Renovation Community Church mm-hmm. as well as a Compassionate Ministry Center as well. Um, but uh, they can look me up on Facebook, facebook.com slash chrisbrannigan. Pretty easy.
0: Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you.